What if we teachers who know our students better than anybody else in the system, and we know exactly what materials would make the biggest difference in their education, if we could post requests for those very materials, tell the world about the projects we wanted to do with our students, and then if donors could choose the project they wanted to support, well then my colleagues and I would be able to take our students on that field trip, get them that set of books, be able to do that science experiment. And it just kind of made sense, even though this was years and years before crowdfunding was a word or a thing. Welcome back to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Allen. Today, we are continuing our conversation with philanthropist and crowdfunding pioneer, Charles Best. In part one of our conversation, Charles and I discussed the three innovations of crowdfunding, a digital marketplace, and cause marketing. In today's segment, we're going to take a deep dive into some of those processes behind those innovations. We'll find out what motivated Charles to choose the nonprofit model, how he raised his operating capital while still teaching in high school, and his unique method of value-based screening of potential team members. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for an incredibly insightful story on the art and science of getting to yes when making a pitch to potential donors. This is part two of our conversation with Donors Choose founder, Charles Best. We've talked about the three innovations. We talked about the fact that you had a digital marketplace. You had kind of the cause marketing and then the crowdfunding thing. But something that's really, I'd say, unique is it is a nonprofit. A lot of these marketplaces, you know, I mean, like when we say marketplace, it's like app stores. You know, you talked about some of the other crowdfunding marketplaces, right? You got Kickstarters and things like that. But that's what that's when we say marketplace, that's really what we're talking about is where there are two parties coming together to converge to do something together somewhere, either buy something, trade something, whatever. And uh, doing that in, in a digital way has been has, has grown a lot. Why? Like there's funding projects and that's where a lot of the story was in that that first segment but then there's funding the business so why did you pick nonprofit and talk a little bit about how you built the team and funded the business yes well i think the reason why we needed to be a nonprofit instead of a for profit and and when donors choose grew and started to generate serious earned revenue and and was the equivalent of a highly profitable charity. Plenty of people asked if we would consider converting to a for-profit or, you know, why we were not a for-profit. But we wanted to be a nonprofit from the beginning and and we're committed to being a nonprofit because we want to do something that to a lot of investors doesn't make economic sense. And that is to be the place for a teacher in a low-income community to be discovered by donors whom they'd never met and to channel the majority, the overwhelming majority of dollars flowing through our site to public schools and low-income communities. If we were out trying to strictly unlock venture funding to be the most profitable company possible, we probably should focus on being the wallet through which a middle-upper income parent donates to their own kids' classroom. Gravitate towards the affluence. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Th- that's, that's what we would almost feel a shareholder obligation to gravitate toward mm-hmm. if we were a business, a for-profit, because it just it makes more financial sense to target that market. There are reasons even beyond unlocking revenue and, and sort of size of addressable market. There's also a major cost involved in being the, the means for teachers in low-income communities to get discovered. If you are... Uh, an upper income parent donating to your own kid's classroom, 
you don't actually need a whole lot of integrity controls because you can see when you drop your kid off at school that when you donated 10 bucks toward a projector, they really did buy a projector and there it is in the classroom being well used. And in that context, the mechanism that you're using to donate can probably just be a cash pass-through. It could probably just deposit money into the teacher's personal bank account and we can trust that things happened as promised because the parent can actually you know, monitor yeah. the projector the next day. Self-policing. Self-policing. Mm -hmm. But in our case, when we're talking about strangers giving to classrooms where they've never set foot, we need a whole host of integrity controls. We vet and authenticate each teacher's project request before it's posted to the public site. We email follow-up questions to the teacher. We do fact-checking. Only then does the project see the light of day. When the teacher's project is funded, we do not pass through cash to the teacher and just trust that things are going to happen as promised. We purchase the resources and have them delivered to the classroom. So even if it is therapeutic horseback riding for three students with disabilities, we are paying the horseback riding stable, which is providing that service to oh those three students. If it's a field trip, we're paying the bus, we're paying the museum. If it's butterfly cocoons, we're paying for butterfly cocoons to be shipped to the right classroom. Once the butterfly cocoons were shipped to the donor's choose office and a whole lot of butterflies hatched. And that was actually um, grosser and dirtier than you think. It evokes, <laughs> you know, magical, fantastical fairy tale butterflies flying all around. Actually, yeah, like actually butterfly works. cocoons are like kind of dirty. Yeah. That's managed fulfillment. Yes. Very managed which fulfillment. Is, which okay. is a white glove, heavy resource. Exactly. Exactly. And finally, after we have fulfilled the project, we provide a means for the teacher to send in thank you letters from students. Um, the teacher takes photographs of the project in action. The teacher sends in a thank you note and an impact letter describing what's happening thanks to the donations. All of that needs to be vetted uh, for, for child safety. And the short of it is we do a heck of a lot of work on each project request so that a donor who's never set foot in a classroom can feel 100% confident that their donation is being spent as promised. They can see how every dollar is being spent. They can hear back directly from the teacher and students. And it's only thanks to that integrity and, and transparency and accountability infrastructure that we can actually inspire folks to donate to teachers they've never met before mm -hmm. and to students who they don't have a, a family relationship to. And of course, that adds cost to our model. And we figured out how to make all that work scalable, but it's just another example of how the, the mission that we have set forth of being a force for equity in education doesn't always make business sense, and that's why we're a nonprofit. That's a powerful message, and the managed fulfillment, I think, provides a security. And I think it also, that experience that you just described is probably a really great invitation for not only a teachers to post again, but also for, and to think big. Yes. Because they're like, it's going to take a lot of time. I got to do all these things. That's right. I'm going to put bigger projects on, not the $50 for some smart markers for everybody. That's exactly right. But then that, you know, on the donor side for them to know, okay, I can trust the managed fulfillment. There's enough reputational uh, equity with donors choose that I kind of believe, and there's a security in giving online now 
that they can do that. And that there's a likelihood or an invitation for them to give again. I, it's, it's super awesome. But you just said something that you were like, it's resource intensive. It's, it takes a lot of work. There are people involved. It's white glove, like I had said. So that is the business of Donors Choose. So how do you fund the business of Donors Choose that happens to be a nonprofit? When someone gives to a classroom project request on our site, let's say, by the way, Chris, what would be the passion that you would express on Donors Choose? Is it a particular mm. book that you loved to read or a sport you played in high school or a hobby that you have or a place, a, a town in America that you feel a lot of heart for? I have a soft spot for musicians. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So kids trying and learning new uh, musical skills. Okay. So if you had, if you did a search for Denver music project requests on our site, you'd probably have a few to choose from. If you pick one from a Denver teacher who is requesting violins for three of her most promising students, and that project costs a thousand dollars. And let's say you, you commit to give $100 to that very project. You'd be encouraged, but not required, to allocate 15%, or in this case, $15 of your donation to support the work that Donors Choose does. About 85% of donors keep that 15% optional allocation included in their donation. And the income thus generated is our operating income. Um, and and that's, that's the money that we use to, to pay salaries, to, to keep the lights on. For the first 10 years of Donors Choose, that operating income was not sufficient to pay our bills. We had to seek outside operating support. In year 10, we broke even. There were enough people giving to enough classroom projects, including that 15% enough of the time, that the revenue thus generated paid all our bills. Today, we generate millions of dollars in operating income over and above our operating yeah. expenses, we're, meaning we're the nonprofit equivalent of a, of a highly profitable. profitable organization. And we deploy all of those, I don't want to use the word surplus because we, we actually feel it's very vital, but the, the money that we bring in over and above our operating expenses, we put all back into classroom projects in really strategic ways. If you're a teacher in a low-income community posting your first project, we match all the donations to your first project. Mm -hmm. The money to do that comes from that operating surplus. Do you do capital expenditures out of that too? Because that's operating income that comes out of it. Do you do capital expenditures and things like that? We for, do. Okay. We do. Right, yep. right, so that makes sense. So like if you need infrastructure changes, you need just things that you need that are capital expenses, you can use it out of That's that. right. Okay. That's, that's right. cool. So what did you do from, you know, all the way up to year 10 before you broke even? How did you go get the balance of your operating income? We did something that was very similar to what a tech startup might do, or even, even a business looking to grow. In, in year five, we put together a plan for going national, for opening all the public schools in America. Okay. And our commitment was, if we can get a $14 million infusion of operating capital, we'll be able to build the tech infrastructure, the people infrastructure, so that donors choose can go national, so that we can open to all the public schools in the country. And when we do, there will be enough people giving to enough classroom projects, including that 15% enough of the time, that donors choose will break even before that $14 million runs out. And in fact, 6 million of that 14 million is still sitting in our bank account because we hit break even no before, before that kind of series A ran out. And it wasn't, a t that's not a typical approach for a nonprofit. It's, it's, sure. it's really the approach that a, that a business would take. But I think it was a compelling proposition and it sure gave us a sense of urgency of like, we got to get to break even before this $14 million infusion is spent up. All right, question popped in my mind. Were you teaching 
during this time? <laughs> I taught for five years. I taught for five years. By my fifth year teaching, I, I felt like I was I risked not being a good teacher because I was yammering on my phone in between every class break and racing out the door when the school bell rang and no longer hanging out in the teacher's lunchroom with my colleagues where the idea for Donors Choose you know, came, came to be. Uh, so I taught for five years and then from year six onward, it was Donors Choose full time. Wow, okay, so talk about the leadership team during that time when you're like, you decide to go you know, raise this $14 million. What was the leadership team or who, who was in the foxhole with you to go raise that money? A group of people, um, most of whom are, are still with Donors Choose. I, I did make more than my share of hiring mistakes in, uh, in maybe the first five, 10 years of Donors Choose, uh, but I'd, I'd like to think I learned from them. And I think the, the caliber of the Donors Choose leadership team and really at, at every level of Donors Choose reflects that learning. We, we, we have really long tenure and we, we actually tend to recruit from former teachers who used Donors Choose. That's, that's a profile we love to recruit from. We, we recruit even more from folks in the business sector who maybe have thought about joining a nonprofit because they want to do even more good for the world during their workday, but who don't want their business acumen or their tech savvy or their data prowess to soften um, or to atrophy. And Donors Choose is, is the magnet for those people. We tend to recruit from the business sector folks who can see that the caliber of the Donors Choose team, the, the strength of our tech stack, the focus we have on data, our obsession with customers and customer service could go up against a Fortune 50 uh, company. Yeah. Well, it takes a really interesting collection of people and prowess and dedication to do something that is behavior changing because that's the hardest that's, that's the hardest thing to do is change someone's behavior, right? Which we talked about earlier, which is like emailing teachers, going direct and going to the parents. This is a total change in behavior. Donors changing how they give. So it takes a real culture to do that. And talk to us a little bit about like, give us something you believed uh, about your hiring techniques and then recognizing that I needed to make a modification about how how I recruit and how I hire. Give us a story about that, and you can you can change the name if you want. I, you know, I think in the in the <laughs> early days, I was especially in the tech arena. I was wowed by pedigree, by academic background, by sort of formal credentials. If if you know, if someone had a PhD in computer science, I mm -hmm. thought, oh my gosh, they have, they have a PhD. I'm supposed to address them as doctor so and so. They must be amazing. Must be. Um, and if, and there's not a whole lot of correlation between having a PhD in computer science and being a great manager or leader. You might be a. It, there might be a decently positive correlation between that that academic background and being a good individual contributor coder maybe but there might not be any correlation between that and and leading being a great and leading people that was a big learning for me well it's, you appreciated education too yes right so i could i could see how that's like a, oh man this person's committed yes you know yes and, and then it's like oh but they may not know how to lead people that's right i think we also learned that it's okay to interview not just for cognitive horsepower and inventiveness and work ethic, uh, but, but to also interview for humility and to interview for an attitude of gratitude, which is, mm -hmm. which is something that we 
try and exemplify a donor's choose in our model as well as in our people. So that's the thing I, that I, th I find really powerful is when businesses are values driven. And it's really easy, if you will, if you're a nonprofit to be like, hey, there's something we value, right? But there's something more there that I think you probably have done, especially with the gratitude thing. Talk to us about the, the values of donors choose and how you sort of screen people with those values. I'll give you one example of an interview question that, that we sometimes ask. Uh, and the interview question is, who are you grateful for? About half of candidates immediately mention their mom and then can't name anybody else. And we think that the ability to rattle off the coach in high school who meant so much to you, the former boss you had at your last workplace who taught you this and that, the ability to rattle off people who you feel a, a sense of debt to mm -hmm. is so indicative of the kind of person you want to work with. Um, and not just an attitude of gratitude, but humility, thoughtfulness, ability to, to give credit where credit is due, lack of, of a sense of entitlement, it captures a lot, that question. Um, and it's kind of wild how, how many people cannot go past their mom in, in uh, who are you grateful for? That is a ridiculously insightful question. I, I love that one a lot. You know, because instantly I'm sitting here thinking, you know, uh, how would I answer that question? There really is something to be said, knowing that it wasn't you that got you, you alone, your own, even though grit, effort, dedication, those things matter. And your values definitely get you somewhere, if you, especially if you have achieved success. But the amount of people that helped you do what you did, helped instill those things in yes. you, that helped refine those things in you, that helped foster those things around you, that helped create environments that you didn't even know that that's what they were doing, right? And that's the power of mentorship, that's the power of coaching, the power of all those things. It is so important to be able to go, that is happening for me and to me, and to be like, I appreciate it. That's right. That's it's, right. It's a, it's a powerful thing. I, that's really insightful because you just asked a question that showed what's in someone's heart really quickly. That's right. I'll give you one other interview question, not quite as fun as who are you grateful for, but we like to identify a passion for learning, for self-improvement. And one way to get at that, at the beginning of the interview, people usually say, walk me through your resume and you know, tell me, give me the voiceover of what you've been up to over the last five years, 10 years. And we'll say, hey, instead of walking us through what you've done uh, over the last five, 10 years on your resume, tell us what you've learned, one thing you've learned at each stage of your career. And most people cannot do that pivot. They have their stump speech about you know, their career over the last 10 years, and they're not trying to bump come off of that at all and so it's actually a fraction of people who are able to hear that you want them to do something different walking through their resume and actually pivot to saying here's what i learned at each of the the jobs i've had over the last few years i mean basically those two questions right there uh reveal someone's willingness to be vulnerable yes and that says a lot about their willingness to connect and be somebody that you're like, I could get into the foxhole with that person and we can go to, you know, righteous war to go raise as much funds as we can for, for the people that we care about. I never thought of the, the common thread as a, a willingness to be vulnerable, but I think you nailed it. Those are like super practical things. And I think the culture is really, really powerful. I, I want to talk about how specifically with your story, you know, you seem to be somebody who can pitch and that doesn't come very natural to people. But one of the things that I've noticed with either small businesses or, or entrepreneurs that are in doing startups is that there is uh, often a perception 
that when you're a consumer, you're like, here are the things that drew me to something. And it's like, I was walking by a restaurant. And so I walked in and gave it a shot or somebody recommended it to me. And I think that the art of attraction is totally different when you become a business owner or an operator where you're no longer a consumer and you have to think like, how do I get that initial traction? You are often, you're, how rarely are you at a grand opening? You're often at some places that's already open, yes. right? And that already has some traction. So if you were to talk to a group of entrepreneurs or a group of people operating, even nonprofits, what would you say are some keys to being able to find your story or your hook and the outlets to go share that? Well, first, what I think you're making clear is that if you're gonna be an entrepreneur, small business creator, you need to see sales as the art and science of getting to yes. You need to see it as the thrill of the chase. I think there are a lot of folks, I think the vast majority of folks out there feel that sales is undignified, that on the ask side of the table, that you're soliciting, that you're coming with your, your hand, you know, your hat in hand yeah. and, and asking for, for something. And um, I don't see it that way. I, I see it as, as, you know, the thrill of the chase. And, and I think you need to f see it that way to be a, an entrepreneur or, or a small business owner. And yet, I think there are a lot of people who think that the, the art and science of getting to yes is just about how, how charismatic and persuasive and eloquent and energetic are you making a pitch. And I, I do get energetic and excited about you know, what we're working on. Hopefully, you, know, hopefully you can feel oh, that right now. It's effervescent. But, but, uh, but, um, but I'll give an example of how we got Stephen Colbert involved with Donors Choose, because he has become, in, in, in many ways, our hardest working board member. He gives a Donors Choose gift card to every guest who goes on The Late Show. That's awesome. He has done stunts and campaigns and calls to action that have generated tens of millions of dollars in, in giving to projects on our site. And uh, Stephen Colbert got engaged with Donors Choose in 2008 when he was running for president in the South Carolina Democratic primary, basically as a joke. And we sensed as he was doing this run for the presidency that he had a problem on his hands, which is he had all these fans and viewers and followers who wanted to support his campaign financially, but Stephen himself would not actually want his viewers to part with their hard-earned money yeah. for something that was for an act of satire, for a joke. So he had like a bit of a conundrum on his hands. So we, so we thought, so, so we guessed. And so we, we came up with an idea for a philanthropic presidential straw poll on Donors Choose where someone could donate to a classroom project in honor of their favorite candidate and thereby push their candidate higher up in what we were gonna call a straw poll that makes a difference. And we, we found a way to share this idea with, with Stephen Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, uh, was someone who had said yes to coffee with me when I emailed him cold out of the blue. He didn't know me from Adam, wow. uh, year two of Donors Choose, but he was like, all right, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll have coffee with you at, at Cole Hardware Store in San Francisco the next time you're in the city. And we knew he was going on uh, the Colbert Report, so we were like, hey, Craig, we've got this idea for a philanthropic straw poll. And um, uh, the wife of Jonathan Alter, that Newsweek 
editor yep. who had done that first paragraph. Yep. His wife was working at the Colbert Report, so we had a second angle in as well. We got the idea to to Stephen Colbert, and it turned out that's exactly the kind of thing he would he was looking for as the way for his viewers to step up and show their love. And he called upon his viewers to make him the winner of the Donors Choose straw poll that makes a difference. He inspired tens of thousands of dollars in donations to South Carolina projects on our site. And, and that was the beginning of the, the most deep engagement we could ever ask for wow. from, a, from a celebrity supporter. The, the lesson here is that we didn't go to Stephen saying, Donors Choose is a great cause. You ought to support us because we're great. Instead, we went in saying, hey, Stephen, we, we sense that you have a challenge on your hands. We sense that you have a, a, a bit of a problem to solve. Our organization can be a means for you to solve that problem and, and overcome that challenge that you're facing. And oh, by the way, we're a good cause. But I think that approach of your, your organization not as this wonderful thing unto itself, but your organization as a means for somebody to solve a problem that they have where you're showing that this pitch is specific to them. You're not coming yes. in with your standard stump speech. You're saying, hey, after learning about what you're doing, I sense that you have this challenge. Here's how uh, my company, my organization, my product could help you solve that challenge that I sense that you have. That, that was our, our sort of unlock for, for the most important celebrity supporter we have. That is amazing. And I, it is clear, right, where the three innovations that we were talking about, there's a theme and a thread that you are really great at recognizing good intentions with problems in the way. Yes. And I think unlocking that, that's a real, that's a real gift. That's a, that's a real gift. It's, it's, I mean, it's powerful to sit and listen to all of the, the things that you've been able to do to unlock. I just have to know, now we're going to geek out for a second. It's, it's not even, this isn't even trajectory. I just want to know, like, what's the other A-B test story that you said you were going to tell me? Yeah. All right. About eight years ago, our CFO came into the office having just read a book called Drunk Tank Pink by this NYU business school professor. And the book cited research that people are more likely to donate to hurricane relief if the first letter of the hurricane is the same first letter as their own name. No way. And apparently this effect is so pronounced that the US Meteorological Survey has left half a billion dollars of hurricane relief giving on the table by not giving the most severe hurricanes common first letter names and thereby inspiring that much more hurricane relief giving. So our CFO comes in the office, he's citing that research. We have an open office and, and I overhear him sharing it. And I'm like, wait, we should do something with that research insight. We've got hundreds of thousands of teachers and, and millions of donors. We can match them up maybe by name. Valentine's Day was coming up. So we did a, an ABC multivariable concurrent test. We had a poem that we sent three variations of. The first poem said, Roses are red, violets are blue. We heart this teacher and hope you do too. And underneath that poem that we emailed to a randomly selected third of our donors, we would show a classroom project request that was algorithmically selected just to be compelling. Yeah. Maybe it was from an especially high poverty public school, um, not needing very much money to cross the finish line, uh, from a teacher who'd never been funded before, that a lot of other donors had given to a really compelling Popular project. Popular scenarios. That's right. So that was test flight A. 
Test flight B said, roses are red, violets are blue, give to a teacher in a classroom near you. And underneath that poem, we would show a classroom project request targeted IP address or to your billing zip code. Here's, here's a classroom near you. And that should be the holy grail of personalization, right? Hyperlocal geo-targeting. Test flight C said, roses are red, violets are blue, give to a teacher with the same name as you. And underneath that poem, we would show you a classroom project request from a Mr. or Ms. Allen. And if you had an especially common last name like Smith, then we would key off of you having the same first name as the teacher, because we would want it to feel like a little yeah. bit idiosyncratic. I wouldn't be telling you this story if, if it wasn't obvious yeah, which, which test flight proved most successful. Yeah, if there's 10 points to put in each bucket, how many points went in bucket three? Yeah, exactly. You should put all of them in bucket three um, because there is something far more powerful than hyperlocal geotargeting, and it is name matching, um, which led to a far higher conversion rate than either test flight A or B. And one thing uh, we, we further believe is that there's something even more powerful than name matching, which is birthday matching. Right? You meet somebody at a party who, who shares your last name, you do a quick check to see if you're extended family, okay, you're not, you know, you're moving on, you know, nothing more than a fun coincidence that you share the same last name. You meet someone at a party who shares your birthday, and you're like, oh my gosh, we are kindred. Totally. We, we, there's something, We know. may have been in the same hospital on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. We may share personality traits if you're into that kind of thing. Um, and so we, we optionally invite teachers and donors to share their birthdays. And we believe that perhaps the most, the single most effective uh, email system email that we send is to a donor on their birthday where we say, hey, Chris, happy birthday, wishing you well. And just PS, here's a classroom request from a teacher who shares your birthday, who's also celebrating their birthday today. And here's a $10 donors choose gift code as a birthday present to you, Chris, that you might want to spend on this teacher's request who's also celebrating her birthday today. And you can imagine that there's a fair number of people who don't just spend that $10 gift code, but decide to add significantly uh, to that donation. See, that's the thing is like, you know, the gift cards is that second, there's two sales involved, right? There's the sale of the gift card and there's the purchase, the person buying. And typically people that have the gift cards spend X amount of dollars more and, and like restaurant and retail, it's up to like 75% more wow. on average. So like, what, what do you recall? Like what the average would be more that people would spend over the $10? You know, our general rule for um, gift card ROI is probably not quite as good as the restaurants you were just citing. What we tend to see is on a people basis, we see a discouragingly small number of people add their own money. But of that fraction who do, they tend to add so much of their own money that it does create a super positive ROI uh, awesome. for the gift card distribution. So it's more like maybe 5% or even 1% mm -hmm. are opening up their own wallets, but they open up. We had one donor who to date has given more than a million dollars who was acquired with a $10 Donors choose gift code. Man, that is amazing. 
Wow. On average, it's probably really high then. That's right. On a dollar's basis, it's a, a very positive ROI. That's really powerful. So, you know, it seems to me that you recognize problems quickly and can recognize solutions that match people's interests. I don't know if that's learned or if it's a superpower or what, but that's, it's really powerful. It's really powerful. It's been incredible to listen to your story and to hear all of the things that you've been, been able to accomplish. I want to ask you some rapid fire questions and then uh, ask you what's next for Charles Best, okay? Let's do it. All right. Question number one, must see spot in NYC that's off the tourist map. There is a broccoli rob hoagie at a spot in the in Hunts Point in a very industrial neighborhood of the South Bronx that I was taken to by a guy named Famous Fat Dave who was a taxi driver for years for the purpose of asking every passenger in his taxi, what's your favorite place to eat? And he would just collect all of these tips and he will take you to the Irish place in Queens that makes the best roast beef sandwich. He'll take you to the Spumoni place where they use like pistachios to create ice cream. He will take you to the place where you can get like a fried Twinkie. He will take you to the most interesting places. And actually, I think my fa my two favorites were Jerk Shrimp, which was a, a stop off in the Bronx, and then a Broccoli Rob Hero, which was not like a sandwich for vegans. It was, yeah. it was it's like a grubby, delicious <laughs> truck driver's version of a Broccoli Rob Hero. <laughs> I love it. Do you still have this person's contact information? Famous Fat Dave. You can look him up. All right. That sounds good. Uh, so would you describe yourself as a thinker or a doer? Doer. <laughs> All right. You're moving from New York to LA soon. Yes. What are you most excited about? I'm excited about tacos in LA. Okay. Foodie. All right. Famous, famous Fat Dave. Is that what his name That's was? That's right. That's right. And then uh, what's a, a major adjustment that you're anticipating? You know, I didn't get my driver's license until I was 22 because I grew up in New York City and I walked and took the subway everywhere. And so driving every day in LA is going to be kind of new for me. The 405. Mm -hmm. uh, what was your favorite uh, historical period to teach on? I loved the gold rush. I loved teaching on it and I loved researching it in college. Wow. Well, what's one historical figure that you'd want to have dinner with? I'm going to say Harry Truman because I, I read his bio and he just seemed like the most stand-up guy who people had low expectations of and who, who smashed those expectations. Man, that's awesome. Love that. All right. What's another entrepreneur that inspires you? A whole bunch. But I'm going to say, this could be a segue, uh, a woman named Ethelyn Kaplan, who was a single mom who in 1954 opened her own toy store in, on Lakeshore Avenue in Oakland and saw a lot of teachers coming in to her toy store and saw, I need to become the place for teachers and then principals and schools and nursery schools and, and preschools to get what they need to furnish their classrooms and, and it would become Lakeshore Learning. All right. Well, then uh, what's next for you? <laughs> speaking of. Speaking of. Yeah. So um, about two years ago, I passed my 20th anniversary at Donors Choose. And I was having as much fun as ever, learning as much as ever. But I just knew I've got to pass the torch at some point. And if I can't resolve to do that on my 20th anniversary, like then, you know, when the heck am I going to do it? So I um, resolved to pass the torch. I was able to uh, recruit the, the dream candidate who I'd had in mind, a guy named Alex Garrier, who's incredible. And I passed the torch to him last spring, joined the board of Donors Choose. 
spent some months researching some ideas and some fields, and then through as, mu as much through serendipity, found myself talking with a guy named Bo Kaplan, who is Ethelin's grandson. And he had this vision for, for my joining Wakeshore Learning, and I recognized it as the, the, the most incredible opportunity for, for me to go from crowdfunding the learning materials that teachers most want for their students to making the learning materials that wow. teachers most want for their students. And it's at an even bigger scale than donors choose, a much bigger scale than donors choose, but it is still the same, the same effort, the same arena of equipping and enriching classrooms all across this country. Man, it's gonna be powerful. I have to say, and you're still on the board. That's right. Yeah, of Donors Choose, which is which is amazing. Well, I have to say your uh, enthusiasm, your just level of, I'm gonna say give a shit, is so high and it's really incredible to just sit across the table and just hear all of the things that you've done, all the problems that you solved. And it means a hell of a lot that you came and sat and had a conversation with us at the studio. Oh my gosh, Chris, thank you so much. Your questions were really some of the sharpest I've ever been asked, I think, because I'm talking to a fellow entrepreneur. So I'm so grateful. Man, thanks for coming. Thank you. Wish you the best. Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. Be sure to check out our entire library of inspiring conversations with industry leaders who've been in your shoes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We'll see you again next time. And until then, remember, success is no accident, and we're here to help you run and grow a better business.